Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, the... Oh, how does one distill the essence of TJ into, one a, few, into a few punchy, pithy words? Not possible. Not possible. But in any case, <laughs> I am, of course, the overblown, mystical, spiritual Pisces. And this is my co-host. I'm Aaron. Who is an Aries, with take that as you will. I didn't, when we set out for this podcast, by the way, we didn't expect every week to begin it with an astrological rumination, but here we are. Yes. So anyway... Yeah, what are we talking about this week? Um, we're talking about that movie with the two guys that kill the kid, and then there are the people that stand around, and Jimmy Stewart shows up. That movie. That's correct. And what is the title of that movie? Uh, rope. It is called Rope. Thread. String. No, it is it Rope. Is not, right? It is not Phantom Thread, although, not... <laughs> although one could easily mistake the two. Yes, yes. Uh, both are about, a very, about fussy people doing horrible things. But in this case, it is, as you say, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Mm-hmm. And... I think you gave an excellent plot summary. Um, it basically focuses on Farley Granger and John Dahlker playing Philip and Brandon, two of the gayest names I can possibly imagine, by the wow. way, who play a pair of obvious homosexuals who, as you say, murder their schoolmate and then host a party while he's in the a chest in the middle of the room as a buffet table. Yeah, that's literally the movie. That is literally <laughs> the movie. Uh, and then, as you say, James Jimmy Stewart shows up as their former sort of he- headmaster and rake some of the coals and etc. So that's a nice setup. And I think it's important, first of all, to sort of situate this in Hitchcock's oeuvre. Because, I mean, if, you know, when you're talking about Hitchcock, like, there are many examples of his fine films. And I, don't I would know, say, I prefer Scully. Well, we're not actually talking about Brooklyn Nine-Nine much as I would like to talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Well, then I'm out of here. I know, it misled you to what we were actually yeah, talking about. You just lied. But anyway, <laughs> situating this at Hitchcock's oeuvre. So it's not, I wouldn't say that for most aficionados of Hitchcock that it's necessarily at the top of the pile. It's not like North by Northwest or Psycho, Where are the Birds. But for me, I think it's one of his more compelling films, both aesthetically speaking and also, obviously, for its narrative content, which mm-hmm. is all about murderous homosexuals. I mean, who isn't interested by murderous homosexuals, I ask you? I mean, I, I love that topic as much as anybody else, but, you know, a movie still needs to be a movie as well. Right. And just looking at some of the reviews that the movie got, I think you're sort of in good company. It got good but mixed reviews. So, right. And a lot of them sort of focused on, like, as a technical matter, the movie was kind of fantastic. Uh, and the criticism came in in the story, where I've got some of my own criticisms of that. But overall, solid film, I'd say. Right. So I think that Aesthetically speaking, one of its most notable attributes is that it appears to be one continuous shot. It's mm-hmm. not actually. It's several long takes stitched together mm-hmm. very seamlessly. And I think that, you know, it's that's part of the reason that a lot of early critics didn't like it because it seems to not make use of what people associate with traditional cinematic techniques. Because yes, like, yes. there's no editing, like the cinematography seems relatively simple. So it basically feels like at times a staged play. Yeah, which is what it's based on. Right. So. But I think that that's part of what makes it so tense and so exquisitely tightly wound. Exactly. Um, bound, if you will, to mm-hmm. use a rope pun. <laughs> because I think it's great when you're talking about a movie that's supposed to be taking place in the context of one evening. That sort of like stage-like device makes a lot of sense. It's not just sort of a weird stunt. It actually does fit the story in this way. Right. And so, of course, you know, the the very first shot that we get is of them strangling their colleague and a college friend mm-hmm. and his anguish, cry of anguish that sort of echoes out. And then they decide to hide him in the chest and all that stuff. So, of course, all of this begs the question, you know, I prefaced this whole discussion by saying it's about murderous homos, but 
of course this being you know the 1940s there's no actual like specific textual declaration that they're gay Mm -hmm. like it's mostly innuendo and suggestion and pretty obvious subtext Mm -hmm. so what what in your eyes or did you read them that way or did i mean it's kind of hard not to now because of just the sort of preponderance of commentary that sees them that way but yeah well there there are two ways that i look at it because i have to be like that with pretty much everything i can't just give a simple answer uh one is that on the one hand there's of course this is still you know under the haze code you know, for movies, if you want to get released in America, you got to follow certain rules. And one of those is that you can't mention homosexuality. That's not just sort of a cultural trend. It was actually a policy right. that meant that no explicit mentions of homosexuality could have been there just for any younger listeners who maybe didn't know about it. <laughs> you know, that was really a rule, not just a, a cultural thing. Right. So no movie could have just come out and said, these guys are gay. <laughs> uh, even if the source material came out and said those things as in the original play for this. So on one hand, because you can't come out and say they're gay, that just sort of invites us to sort of look for reasons to view characters as gay because we know that we could never be told. Right. The other thing that I keep in mind, which is sort of the counterbalance to that, though, is the fact that this story is inspired by the real-life Leopold and Loeb case. Correct. And so, on the one hand, yeah, I I can sort of look at this as characters, because they are fictionalized characters for this. But since we're also drawing on real-life source material... Uh, that's the other thing that I bring to my viewing of this because that uh, the Lee Bolton Lope case is the one that I remember reading up on mm-hmm. when I was a kid and more interested in law and that kind of stuff. And so because of that real life influence, I'm less inclined to immediately call these characters gay, but I'm open to reading them that way because I kind of just want to be open to reading them that way. Right. So can you just give our listeners a, a brief synopsis of the Leopold and Loeb case? Okay, so it's kind of like what the movie, so if you watch the movie, you see you, you get the basic idea. You have at least in the real life case, we get a little bit more backstory uh, with the people since they were real life. Uh, human beings, Leopold and Loeb were friends, longtime friends who had a history of committing crimes against people, animals, all kinds of things like that, but came up with this idea to commit sort of the perfect murder. And that's the thing about the murder that's central to the plot of the play and the movie that we're reviewing today, is that this murder wasn't motivated by any of the normal sort of motivations that you might expect a character to have for murder. There's no real vengeance involved. No one's in danger. It's not like it's a self-defense type murder. It's not even a, it's not a murder out of anger. It's not a murder in order to get ahead to gain some other sort of advantage in any other way. It's literally just to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just for the act of murder itself, which is downright horrifying in a lot of ways. Uh, and you made even more horrifying by the fact that that's the part that's influenced by the real life story. Right. Like that's the thing that's most true to life. Right. Is that the real life Leopold and Loeb also committed the, that murder of Bobby Franks just because of the idea of murder. Right. And in the movie, uh, as both Brandon, as Brandon, or, uh, sorry, Philip in particular goes on and on about is that, or sorry, Brandon, it is Brandon, that says it, that, you know, their motivation or his motivation is driven by his sort of ubermensch mm-hmm. Nietzschean belief that him and arguably Philip, although I think he's less convinced of that as the movie goes on, are, you know, are innately better mm-hmm. than so many of their banal boring colleagues and mm-hmm. friends that they so most of which they invite for this party yeah. and so that's what motivates them is because they feel like they because they're superior they have the right and i mean 
I don't want to say that murder is good because it obviously is not, but I do think that that's part of what makes these queer characters it, not sympathetic necessarily, but definitely appealing or compelling. Like, and I mean compelling in a very specific sense that they draw us in, they sort of insinuate us into their own sort of dark psyche. Mm-hmm. And there's a way, you know, obviously the film, because as you say, the Hayes Code wants us to sort of read them as being despicable, but I think there's a sort of empowerment to their persona as well yeah well and for me i actually feel like they're these two characters are probably the best sort of examples of sort of quintessential queer villains with the focus on the villainy part Mm. because i actually find them to be the least redeemable of any sort of a queer villain character i can think of oh right because of that very nature of we we're killing just because we can right and not because of we're trying to strike a blow for justice or we're trying to help the world in any no we just can, so we will. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, I would be, I want to be clear about what I'm saying. I don't necessarily, I don't at all think they're redeemable. I think it's the fact that they're not redeemable that mm-hmm. is fascinating to yes. me. Like, that's yes. what interests me. Because so often, like, these days we want to see queer villains rescued or rehabilitated. But I think there's something mm-hmm. really fascinating and I would even say, say terrifying and unsettling about these kinds of characters that are not recuperatable. Like, yeah, there's yeah. nothing that's actually, like good about them yeah they're 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 honestly just the bad guys in this right and this and i mean so often you know film and cinema wants us to wants us to see them as moral examples that mm-hmm. they are meant to represent that which is evil and ugly and all that and anti-social particularly and this is where my i'm gonna put on my phd hat for a moment because i wrote about this in my dissertation is that the post-war period in particular was unbelievably virulent when it comes to understanding gay people Mm -hmm. like the way that popular intellectuals like spoke about gay people was very horrible Mm -hmm. and so i think though that one of the things we can do looking back is to sort of excavate and not rehabilitate but sort of sit with these characters in a way that doesn't necessarily ask us to swallow the film's ideology or ideological position whatever it may be whole but nor do we have to respond with like Oh my God, they're awful! Like, but there's some, there's a sort of middle ground, a mm-hmm. sort of liminal space there that I'm trying to get at. Yeah, that I think is more fascinating, productive. I don't know yeah. what kind of word I exactly I want to use to get at what I'm trying to pinpoint. Right. But maybe that's the point: is that it can't be pinpointed exactly. Or I'm like, I think there's just something to the idea that we can just sort of revel in the badness of these characters the way that we might for other kinds of villain characters again our listeners have heard me say that kind of thing before but what i like in sort of the explosion of queer representation that we've had since 1948 when this movie came out uh, is that not everything has to do everything not every work has to say everything that could possibly be said about queer people (laughs) we can just have a story about these guys (laughs) now of course this movie was from a long time ago. That wasn't true then, but we can look back at it uh, with this sort of newer understanding and maybe just say, you know what? I like the fact that they're just bad characters because sometimes bad characters are just fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I mean, because I think a lot about, again, to put on my P, my English PhD hat, Lee Edelman, who wrote this very, uh, what do we want to call it? A uh, inflammatory and deliberately so book called No Future mm-hmm. and about queer and it's part of a broader movement within like queer theory and the academy of sort of the antisocial queerness rather than trying to rehabilitate 
queer characters or normalize them or interpolate them into mainstream society that we instead can look to these fictional characters as an alternative. Like, instead of trying to say, oh, well, they're really good or they're just misunderstood or they're, you know, products of their time, but no, they're just locuses of malevolence mm-hmm. and viciousness. Yeah. And so that there's something liberating about that, too. Yeah, there's just something nice about the idea that some of us can be sociopaths, too. <laughs> right. Gay people, there are many avenues for gay people. Like, there, mm-hmm. you, too, can be a sociopath. Exactly. <laughs> if you <laughs> put your mind to it. <laughs> and I think that a lot of what makes these characters so fascinating and so fun to watch are their performances. So, mm-hmm. I want to start with Farley Granger, who I have a huge crush on even now. Um, and <laughs> I'm not at all surprised. So he is the guy who plays Philip, and he was bisexual in real life, and he lived many years with his longtime partner. Um, so first of all, I think that what part of what has always drawn me to Farley Granger is he's just beautiful. Like he is the sort of pinup boy, sultry beauty that we sometimes emerges out of classical Hollywood. He's not traditionally masculine, but if I had to compare him to someone, I'd say maybe like Montgomery Clift, although I think a little bit more brooding than, Mo- yes. than Montgomery Clift, but he has that same kind of ethereal kind of beauty, um, sultry. It's the same way with James Dean. Like physio- physiologically, I think he most resembles something like Dean mm-hmm. or Brando, who both also kind of exude this brooding, dark energy. And, you know, I'm sort of cribbing off of the time magazine's obituary for him. He died in 2011. But it's very much in display with Philip, who we kind of get to watch fall apart in real time. Because unlike Brandon, who really seems to have imbibed the the real meat and bones of this Nietzschean philosophy, it's very clear from the beginning that Philip is, first of all, the bottom, but also, <laughs> you know, feels not necessarily moral compunction, but terror at being discovered. Like, mm-hmm. for him, they've not actually committed the perfect crime. It's all going to come falling down, mm-hmm. right down around them. And, like, you see it on his face. Like, he twitches. He has, like... His face is just so expressive yeah. that it's... You could just sort of watch what I call the erotics of suffering mm-hmm. as, you know, this beautiful person who has a rotten soul is literally having, like, a mental breakdown mm-hmm. <laughs> as this party goes on. And I think in particular the scene where one of their guests is a like a fortune not a fortune teller but like an astrology person and like believes in you know palm reading and all yeah. this shit and she starts reading his palm and you're like these hands will be famous or some other kind of <laughs> ridiculously overwrought line and of course to her he's playing the piano so it seems like he's going to be a musician but he knows that it's because he strangled his friend with a rope mm-hmm. yeah all of that was spot on although I will point out that I think it's quite reductive to call him the bottom <laughs> for all of this I don't make those sorts of assumptions but clearly some of us queers still do that sort of thing I make no bones about that <laughs> you'll forgive the I'm, don't, you don't have to forgive the pun I'm just going to put it right out there I, I make no bones about that assumption. He has bottom face. I don't know what else to wow. say. Wow. My apologies to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you make of Farley Granger? Are you as erotically drawn to him as I am? Or? I mean, no. But, that's, that's <laughs> but I, I do think that there's something... I do love watching him in this movie. He, he is very much to be looked at <laughs> in this movie. Uh, and I think it works well. Basically for all the reasons that you just said. He does sort of occupy this role where because of the way that he starts to spiral a bit it's just this interesting spectacle Mm. to look at to see that kind of emotionality for someone who's trying to hold it all together really to save his life because like in the real life case they were sentenced to death they weren't actually (laughs) executed but were sentenced to were they sentenced to death or life no they got life 
So, uh, but for their freedom, essentially, uh, to protect themselves in that way. You're watching someone when the stakes are that high, even when it's someone that you kind of want to watch them go down because they deserve it. It's still a little sad at the same time, too. And I think that uh, Farley Granger's performance really shows us that. You know, I think that it's a nice nuanced performance that shows kind of the richness of somebody who thought they were all that come when it all comes crashing down. And because it's, you know, as we alluded to earlier, it's shot in such a way that it feels like it's unfolding in real time. Or it mm-hmm. is functionally unfolding in real time. Like, that's what makes it such a fascinating psychological portrait of a film mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, there's an intimacy to it that we associate with theater as well. Yeah. Like, all of which I think really helps to bolster it, um, you know, and elevate it to the realm of art. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, there's John Dahl's Brandon, who is a very different type of character, who from the very beginning makes it clear that, A, he's the top, I'm being reductive again, so you can eat me. Um, <laughs> but it's also the more sort of driven and straightforwardly Nietzschean of the two of them. Like, he, as I said, has really imbibed this philosophy that they are better than everyone else. Yes. But even he starts to break down toward the end, but throughout the most of it, he seems to be the one who's most assertive and the most driven mm-hmm. to see this through. Yeah, and when you talk about him starting to break too, what difference do you see there? Is it more for him? Whereas I think uh, for uh, for Philip's character, I think there's throughout, there's this f- fear that, it, that they're going to get caught, that, mm. they didn't, that they didn't actually get away with it, that they're going to get caught, they're going to be punished, and that th- that from the very beginning there was the doubt as to whether or not their claims to superiority were actually grounded in reality enough to protect them through this like you're saying uh with brandon he's much more of a true believer it seems like and so for me when i'm watching him when the edifice finally starts to crack a bit it's because his intellectual idea has fallen apart and that's how i read their performances a little bit different one is worried about what's going to happen to me Am I going to go to prison? The other one is, am I as great as I thought I was? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really smart way of putting it. And that's why performance is so important. And, you know, speaking of performance, and like, we still haven't answered the question of why are these characters gay? Mm-hmm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that, since I think that part of it is the performance. Mm-hmm. And part of it is refracted through what we now know about the actors. Like, obviously, as I alluded to earlier, Granger was bisexual in real life and had relations with men and women, but his longest relationship was with mm-hmm. his partner, and male I, partner. And I'd like to point out that actors' sexuality is distinct from the roles they take on. <laughs> I, point taken. But I, but I would also... John Dahl was also rumored to be gay. The screenwriter, Arthur Lawrence, from the film yes. was also openly gay, quite straightforwardly so, and yes. like was well-known as a gay writer. Mm-hmm. So I think that not to... I don't want to boil this down to sort of the essentialism that gay actors must necessarily give off a gay vibe. Mm-hmm. But I do think there is part, part that is part of what gives the film, at least for those of us in the present, a queer sensibility. Mm-hmm. Like, where that imbues it with a certain kind of queer archness yeah. that I appreciate as a viewer. Whereas I, I just philosophically can't get on board with it. Maybe it's because I've done just a teeny bit of acting myself, too. And I, I feel like that just, it so discounts what actors do. Well, sure. As their job that I I just can't get on board with that myself. Well, I guess I would say that, like, I'm not saying that I'm not reducing them to that, but I'm saying that what maybe what gives that film its extra bit of bite is the the actors' awarenesses of their own identity as Mm -hmm. queer people. And allows them to, you know, inflect their roles, knowing as they do that the characters are supposed to be gay, at least as the plot 
unfolds yeah. in the play. Yeah. That it allows them to imbue it with a certain kind of sensitivity and understanding that's intangible but sensible. Yeah. And but that's one of those things where I'm like, you could very easily fall into well then can gay actors play straight roles? <laughs> well, no, but I'm just saying that there are times when one's own biography can inflect well, one's, of course, one's yeah. art. Yes, and, and that and which for me it makes it no different from anything else that an actor might draw on from their own life. Well sure. And so which for me I guess for me that's not particularly special because actors do that all the time. Well, I mean, it's special to me yeah. as a non-actor. Yeah. I think it makes it special. <laughs> but what else? I mean, like, I know that it's, at this point, it's commonplace just to call them gay. Yeah. I mean, because like, it's become so solidified within mm-hmm. sort of the cultural and critical conversations yeah. that have taken place. And I think that audiences of the 1940s were not nearly as naive yes. as we tend to believe that they were. Yes, yes. Like, there's a common perception that subtext was never sort of under explicable. Now, certainly... There were people who were innocents and mm-hmm. would go to the films with that sense. I mean, I think of my grandparents in particular. Yeah. Um, but I think that for many sort of more, I don't want to say sophisticated, that sounds pedantic or, or condescending. But yeah. I think that for many who were trained by having watched a lot of films, they would have recognized the signs mm-hmm. of that. Like, there's only one bedroom, the intimacy with which they sort of touch each other mm-hmm. and like engage with each other. I think would, and plus it's not as if Leopold and Loeb were like, historical memory by that point they, mm-hmm. that was a relative not a completely re- recent but relatively recent phenomenon so mm-hmm. there would have been people in living memory who would have known that that's what it was being drawn on exactly and there, there's all i'm glad you brought up the idea of uh past audiences not being as naive as we think they are because if audiences were naive back at that time if only say queer audience members would have been in on this kind of stuff there would have been no reason for the huge legacy of coded queer jokes right. that that are sort of scattered throughout, you know, you know, Hollywood movies of this era, if you thought that the vast majority of your audience wouldn't get it. Right. Like, there would be no reason for all of it. <laughs> and so for that, I tend to assume, like you, that most people watching this would have been in on any sort of coded references like that. Uh, for me, the thing that I liked to do is, do I... Do I want to think of these characters as gay or am I okay with seeing their interactions as being homoerotic? Mm. Is that enough or do I need them to be gay? Because the homoeroticism I can certainly see. Right. And I feel like it's almost like you almost can't argue it. Right. Given the way when they're talking about the murder itself, it's practically like they're having sex <laughs> during that conversation. <laughs> But that's also not having sex. It's them having that reaction to remembering the act of killing. Right. And sort of eroticizing the violence in that way, which I think sort of moves beyond sort of traditional notions of sexuality and sexual Mm. identity into something else. Right. And I mean, the question of whether they have sex or not is a really fraught one, particularly since, you know, Hitchcock, of all the directors of classic Hollywood, was fixated on sex in one way or another. So I think, I think that you're right, that there is something that often the eroticism is displaced onto the murder itself, mm-hmm. which, of course, allows the film to bracket for the moment whether these two characters have sex outside of the scope of what's happened today. Yeah, yeah. because the focus becomes on that. And then for me, that brings up the question of if if the eroticism is rooted in this act of violence, does it even make sense anymore to try to fit it into paradigms of straight, gay, whatever, when it's about, it's not about the things that we think that straightness and gayness are about anymore. <laughs> it's about this violence. Mm. <laughs> and is it just the bond of two people who've committed this horrific act together? Or is it 
a romantically linked couple. <laughs> I mean, my personal reading, and I don't know how much of this is just my own desire for what I want to see and how much of it is from the film, or is it both? Mm-hmm. Um, is that they are a romantic couple that clearly live together who I think that in my sort of headcanon mm-hmm. that Brandon has, or Philip has long idolized Brandon and goes along with this as a, as a, as a sign of his romantic affection. Mm-hmm. And that that's, and you know, I think that this murder allows them to sort of externalize their desires in a way. Like, I think that they're probably like maybe having sex, but maybe not. Like, I think they have a, I think that their life as conflicted subjects in a very deeply homophobic age makes their existence necessarily difficult and tragic. Mm -hmm. And that's, and it manifests itself as this murderous act. Yeah. Whereas I tend to think that even if I read them as gay, I tend to read them more like your latter reading where the society there constrains them so much that they would never actually act on whatever romantic feelings they might have in a romantic sort of way. That's just off the table for them. And that the murder then serves as possibly the only way that they would be able to express their feelings for one another. So that kind of loyalty to, and devotion that you see between the two characters, I think that the murder is the only way hmm. for these two people to express that if it exists at all. Hmm. I, for me, these would be two people who, like, it wouldn't even occur. I don't, they're, it, they're to the point where I feel like they're so closeted that it wouldn't even occur to them to want to have sex with one another if they are, in fact, gay. Mm. I'm not sure that I agree, but I think that's I think that's mostly a manifestation of my own desire for what I would like <laughs> to be the case rather than textually. Yeah. But I do think that that's what makes these characters, again, so fascinating, is that they're very instability. And I mean that both in a sense of diegetically, mm-hmm. but also sort of symbolically. Yeah. The, our inability as as current viewers to sort of put our finger on who they are to pin them down mm-hmm. is sort of the ultimate expression <laughs> yeah. of their queerness yes. and what makes them so ripe for continued engagement. Which to me is a lot more fun than just making them gay. <laughs> right. I mean, they're not just... I mean, I would argue that they're probably not, like, having a happy little domestic house. Although they do have a lovely maid who is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, she sort of, you know, offers some ironic counter commentary. Um, so, of course, you know, I think that what gives their queerness the extra bite is, of course, the fact that that Brandon, in an extra fit of pat, you know, of cunning, decides to put their slain colleague's body in a cedar chest, which they then use as the buffet table for the party. I mean, that's we have a cedar chest upstairs. That's what I use it for. I was going to say that is what I had been planning to use it for. That's the whole reason. <laughs> well, I... it's already occupied. Sorry. Which, of course, you know. This is where they their his tortured psyche becomes even more twisted. Like it's twisted enough again to use a rope pun to kill someone in cold blood, but then to uh, stage this elaborate charade for the group that's coming to visit, which includes I should really hasten to point out the murdered man's father, and supposedly his mother, but he's at home with a cold. Mm-hmm. So you know the murdered man's father is especially horrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also macabrely funny. Like there's yes. a gallows humor to it that I think is like inescapable. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the thing that make, that's probably the queerest thing about this entire movie is the desi- is the de- the decision to go from this horrific decision to let's make it a spectacle of sorts. <laughs> let's somehow make a show of this thing that we can't show. Right. And I'm like, what's queerer than that? <laughs> It's a brilliant the the body that cannot the, the body that dare not speak its name. 
But I mean, I do think that, you know, obviously for Philip, I'm sorry, Brandon, I keep getting them confused. I don't know why. <laughs> They're basically the same. <laughs> so for, for, for Brandon, this act is just itself another, a way of illustrating how superior they are for mm-hmm. uh, their friends and colleagues and, and neighbors and so forth. Like this is just another moment in which they can show how elevated they are and mm-hmm. how, you know, above the hoi polloi, which again, that's a part of the reason I think that they read as queer, especially for those of us who are queer snobs, like, well, like me, yes. um, who, who <laughs> I, I try, I earnestly try not to look down on others, particularly my straight friends, but it's sometimes very difficult. Like mm-hmm. the banality of straightness is sometimes unendurable, Yeah. but anyway, not to get too personal, but that's, I think part of what re- makes, allows them to be legible as queer is their sense of just utter disdain for the people around them. Mm-hmm. And it's very manifest as the party goes on, certainly from Brandon, who makes a real point of needling literally everybody. And, you know, part of the scheme is that he's, you know, hooked up uh, two people who have a connection with the slain guy. So, mm-hmm. like, it's basically playing a mind game with them. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, who among us hasn't had fun at the straight's expense, <laughs> is what I would like to ask. I, I can say that I am a friend of the straight's. I can accept people regardless of their identity. Look, some of my best friends are straight, okay? <laughs> wow, he just went there, folks. I did go there. <laughs> but I think that, you know, it's kind of fun to watch them toy with these other sort of utterly banal mm-hmm. party guests even as we as we the di- you know the audience realize that hey there's a dead body mm-hmm. <laughs> you know while all this is going on and they're sort of just nattering as one does at these kind of par- house parties it's just kind of again it's gallows humor yes. it's, it's a macabrely humorous kind of take on it exactly. and, a, and peculiarly peculiarly Hitchcockian. Yes. Like, he's a very ironic filmmaker, at least from my point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I think that he, because of these characters, is using them as a sort of poke fun at the banality of sort of post-war upper crust society. Like, yes. they look so absolutely silly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we're invited to laugh at them along with Brandon and Philip. Although, yeah. as I said, Philip's falling apart while this is going on. Right. But for me, and I, but I also read it as an indictment of particularly the upper class, but of a certain kind of like, for lack of a better term, upper class of feet queer mm. <laughs> kind of pers- person, as opposed to a more sort of down earth queer person of maybe the same era. What I love is that in order to step outside of that sort of, but the banality of straight domesticity, <laughs> they got to kill somebody. Like, they couldn't think of any other way <laughs> to be different from <laughs> these other folks to sort of show that they're better than all these straight folks. The only solution you could think of is just to kill a random person. <laughs> well, I mean, he's not entirely random. They do know him, <laughs> which makes it worse, I guess. But when I say random, they had literally no reason to kill him. Oh, right. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, again, to drive home the pointlessness right. of this murder. Literally no reason to do it, just because, other than the fact that they wanted to. Right. Just to prove a point. Yes. <laughs> or to prove that they were better. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, brings us to the other notable guest at this party. Um, who which The party includes, as I said, the the slain guy's father, a bunch of other the fortune teller slash, you know, astrologist, and a bunch, and, you know, some of their other college friends who mm-hmm. they're basically just using this as an excuse to make fun of them and make them feel stupid. But they also invite Cadell, who is played by Jimmy Stewart, um, who is their mentor and when they were at school, mm-hmm. who sort of nurtured them in this belief this philosophical Nietzschean belief in this super man and you know the sort of 
benefits that come along with that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he immediately senses that something is off. And, you know, it's Jimmy Stewart, so take that for what you will. Right. I'll get to that in a moment. But, you know, as the night unfolds, he gradually realizes what has come to pass and then basically confronts them with it and he goes into this long rant and then basically takes the gun that Brandon is brandishing and shoots it to draw the cops' attention. Mm-hmm. So, I have a lot of thoughts about Jimmy Stewart's performance here and about the sort of self-righteousness with which he delivers his lines. And if anyone can deliver a self-righteous histrionic rant, it would be Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. Like, he is one of those actors who I think really dials it up to 11 Mm -hmm. in these moments. So so tell us what you think. Share with us, TJ. (laughs) Share with us. I will share with you. So I I draw a lot. I'm thinking here of Colleen Glenn. She's a film scholar who's written about the sort of like post-war hysteria of Jimmy Stewart's performance that manifests like post-war anxieties about masculinity and it's always in crisis kind of mode. And, I, you know, as Stewart gets and, and Cadell, his character gets more and more worked up. He gets more and more like vociferous in his condemnation. And to me, it's both deeply hypocritical since he's one of those armchair philosophers who believes something but will not actually put his money where his mouth is and mm-hmm. like you know that gives him a sense that he gets to you know lord it over brandon and philip but as they i think they could rightly say but you said you believed all of this so mm-hmm. like why now are you suddenly getting on your high horse like where's whence comes this sanctimony sir like you told us that this is what you believe you have to, to cultivate this attitude so like you know climb up climb down off of it mm-hmm. and then secondly i also think and this may be just me and my and i like jimmy stewart but i also find him kind of grating in the way that his performances are always in these moments are always di- dialed up to 10 so it feels like a little bit of a wink directorially speaking to sort of suggest that we're not necessarily meant to take him at, as seriously Whereas the more arbiter, despite the fact that he is obviously the star. Exactly. And I mean, part of the reason he's the star is because he's the big star. He so is, that's yeah. why he gets the billing of the star, even though his role is much smaller than the two main characters uh, in the movie. But to your point about his uh, sort of the disconnect between his stated philosophies, at least as represented by our two main characters, and his actions as the movie progresses, is that. I read it slightly differently. I feel like partly because he's older, he's the mentor type figure mm. to these much younger men. I actually read his position as, sadly enough, I'm, I'm actually being kind to this guy who's basically a Nazi. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but he's got the benefit, he's got enough wisdom to recognize that there's daylight between a philosophy and life. Well, that's true. <laughs> that you that we don't directly live out philosophies. That they're the things that sort of shape our actions, shape our choices as we go through this complex thing that we call life. The younger main characters don't seem to understand that. They seem to think that you can just directly live those those philosophies, and that's part of their downfall. Mm. I mean, I would I think that you know to fl- to flip that just slightly, I would say it's analogous to me arguing that like we can sit with queer murderers because mm-hmm. i mean obviously i'm not espousing that queer people should murder straight people exactly. in the real world i'm not in any way i would never in a thousand years ever advocate for that mm-hmm. <laughs> but nevertheless like why are we drawn to these antisocial characters mm-hmm. like that we can understand and you know contemplate them in a symbolic philosophical way we don't necessarily have to take that out into like manifesting it in the physical world exactly one of the nice things about 
works of fiction like movies and plays and books and things like that is that they're relatively safe places to do those things. Right. Because they're really just words. They're really just images mm. rather than actually going out and killing your friend. <laughs> right. And I mean, but I do think that, you know, the film obviously, I think operating under the constraints of the production code is at least in part why it makes such a point of giving him this sort of mo- what is a functionally a monologue mm-hmm. as he goes on and on and on about how awful they are and you know how they've they're not really better you know all the sort of spiel that he gives uh, again it's just it's kind of a little hard to take it entirely seriously mm-hmm. um, or to give it the kind of weight that he clearly puts it yeah. mostly because it just feels like overcompensating for his own culpability mm-hmm. or his own perception of his culpability and yeah. what's happened. Mm-hmm. So that's that. Um, but I also think that, you know, this raises the, and part of the reason I chose rope to sort of, you know, to talk about this week was as an object lesson. And this, you know, this philosophy that you were just talking about that the power of film and fiction and television, all the kinds of things that we engage with is that it is sometimes uncomfortable. Like I think that, I don't want to take this too far, but it does seem that sometimes like this new mode of criticism that far too many people indulge in, you know, suggests that problematic works like rope, and I mean problematic in the sense that it's filled with problematic characters, mm-hmm. is somehow an evil in itself because yes. it proposes or assumes and asks us to do the same, that queer people are monstrous and evil. Even though, of course, diegetically, it does not say anything of the sort. Yeah. But more to the point, even if it did, (laughs) that sometimes it's worth sitting with those things for a number of reasons, as we've alluded to, because it's an interesting historical document, because, as you said, fictional spaces allow us space to explore the darker things that exist within us that we would do well to acknowledge rather than suppress. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, in that sense, it, well, I mean, if anyone, again, is suited to this kind of discussion, it would be Hitchcock, who I think had a really keen understanding for the really dark, sinister, vicious parts of the human psyche. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we don't necessarily need to indulge those things in the real world, but I think that there's something exciting and, re- and even, dare I say it, rewarding about doing it in a somewhat symbolic. Yeah, exactly. Part of me likes to think that maybe, you know, if Jeffrey Dahmer had had more of an outlet, <laughs> maybe he wouldn't have actually murdered as many people. As he I mean, this is actually kind of, I mean, the, it occurs to me now as we're sitting here talking about this, it's very Nietzschean in a way, because mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of how he argues about like the power of Greek tragedy, for example, yeah. is that these kinds of artistic forms allow us to process things. Like, that's why, you know, I've been seeing a certain shift in the discourse online, admittedly, so take that for what it's worth. But I call for sort of embracing dark queer characters who are not saints. Yeah. But we, you know, we, there is space for us to engage with these characters and sit with them and imbibe what they're going through and thinking about, because there's a power there, Yeah, you know, rather than just kind of ignoring it or sanding off all the hard edges. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I think, I know the pendulum swings on this sort of thing culturally, but I feel like, you know, we're still very much in a place where where we we feel like images like this are supposed to be a model for us because we will be influenced by them mm. rather than thinking about these images as an outlet. Right. 
Uh, and like I said, it seems like sometimes we understand that and sometimes we don't. It seems like now we're in a moment where we don't understand the right. possibility of this kind of stuff being an outlet mm-hmm. rather than uh, an aspirational model. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, and I, I read about this in my in my dissertation chapter about queer villains in epic films, but I also think about it now. You know, there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, there's not a, there's a quite a few similarities between like 50s discourses and 40s, 40s and 50s discourses about homosexuality and contemporary discourses about homosexuality, both of which see it as a, a danger. I mean, it's much less dominant now yes. than it was in the 50s and 40s, but it is still very prominent within certain segments of the population yeah. who and, tend but, to be very loud. But I'm going to argue that those segments basically are all but squeezed out of mass entertainment. That's true. And that's the big difference. Right. I think. It's like, those are fringe voices now. Oh, sure. That it's like, you couldn't get a, a movie made that had any kind of budget. That's that true. Said anything. Like, you couldn't get a TV series right. <laughs> to, to say that kind of stuff now. Well, that's true. But I, what I was getting at is that in both now and then, I think that what these characters represent is, a, you know, if we're speaking about our dark, our darker desires, and the sort of, sort of cynical, vicious parts of our person, person yeah, psyches, then I think that movies like Rope give us an outlet against this kind of culture war nonsense. Like, if people mm-hmm. are going to paint us as monsters, these kind of representations give us an opportunity to inhabit that space and feel empowered, at least for the time that, we're, that they're on the screen. Mm-hmm, exactly. Whew, that's a lot. We've, I mean, I think that we don't always get into the theoretical weeds, but I think we've done a really good job of sort of explicating what makes rope so fascinating mm-hmm. even now. Like, I think that, you know, obviously Philip and, and, and Brandon take their place among the great queer villains of classic Hollywood, along with like Eve and Addison from, and, and Mrs. Danvers and all that sort. Like, these are the kind of characters that we return to again and I'm again. Just pointing out none of these characters were explicitly queer. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just but, messing with no, you. but they put their toe right on the line. Exactly. They're about as queer as you could get in the code era. <laughs> right. And I mean, there's a lot of pleasure in the subtext. And, yes. the, you know, we here at Queen sometimes put the sub in subtext. So, <laughs> you know, and that's actually one thing that, oddly enough, that I kind of miss about contemporary with contemporary movies when I compare them to these old uh, movies from that earlier era of Hollywood is because they had to be coded. It forced a kind of creativity of mm. expression that I sometimes wish contemporary movies did a little bit more of. Right. <laughs> Note that we're not calling for repression. We're just saying that some, a little more subtlety yeah. and nuance <laughs> in characterizations would go a long way. And and repression makes things hot. <laughs> Spoken like a true Catholic. <laughs> Well, that seems like a good place to stop. Um, I think we've, like I said, I think we've done a really fantastic job of explicating this film. Um, there's a lot more to say, certainly about Rope. So, you know, if you feel like it, drop us a line on the podcast. Um, we're always happy to hear from our listeners. So, as always, give us a few minutes and we'll be right back with a little PSK. All right. Well, as much as I would, I hate even having to utter this man's name, um, but I feel it behooves me to to bring it up. It's I Donald to, Trump, isn't it? I, no, for once, it's the other crazy millionaire or billionaire, I guess. Yeah, you got to be way more specific than that. Elon Musk, oh, unfortunately. Yeah. So don't even say his name. <laughs> he shall not. He who shall not be named. Um, apparently, on Twitter last night, decided 
for some very inexplicable reason that because, as he put it, targeted harassment of any group is wrong, that the terms cis and cisgender would now be regarded as, like, verboten on Twitter and possibly could earn you a ban or suspending your account. Okay, so first I have a question. Okay, so using words like cis or cisgender, is there anyone who knows what those words mean who's still on Twitter? What do you mean exactly? <laughs> I mean, like, who's still on Twitter would even know those words well, to even say them? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's very much in keeping with Musk's already, you know, he, speaking of subtext, he's really pretty much said he hates trans people and wants to make Twitter as hostile to them as humanly possible. Yeah, I know, but isn't everyone already gone from, who's still on Twitter is my real question. You'd be surprised. There's quite a few people still on Twitter, like very prominent intellectuals and trans activists are still like present and active on Twitter. Well, (laughs) but I mean, that's, and this is not, not just a PSK, but also like just sort of the vexing question of, of Twitter and like, what happens when one of the world's foremost social media tools falls into the hands of a deranged billionaire? Like, I mean, I could see Aaron's skepticism. Yeah, what? Because, what? <laughs> I, I mean, as an independent creator, I rely a great deal on Twitter to get the word out about my writing. Like, there's no other outlet that fills that gap, like, at the moment. So if I don't advertise on Twitter, people don't see it. And that's the thing about, but I, I don't, the other thing about this is I don't think that he's going to actually enforce this. I think this is all performative and it's, you know, it draws in the usual ilk. Like JK Rowling was saying about how cisgender is made up. Like it's not made up. It's literally I mean, just a way. It's made up like every other word in the English language is made and up. And I would think that someone <laughs> who literally made her career about making up words for a boy wizard would be yeah. a little more sympathetic, but of course <laughs> we don't need to get on the JK Rowling spiel. I, much as I would love to rant about how much I hate her. Um, Oh, don't please don't sue me, J.K. Rowling. I know how she loves to sue people, but yeah, well, I I've never read your books, <laughs> but I mean, it's also just again, you know, you alluded to earlier, like the loudest voice, you know, these kind of loud minority who are so vitriolic toward the queer community. Mm-hmm. It's this is a good example of exactly that phenomenon, yeah. um, and I mean, obviously. I don't think it's going to be enforceable, but it's also just points out the hypocrisy of this kind of free speech mm-hmm. gurus like. Elon Musk, because yeah. they really don't care about free speech. They just want to give a cover to Nazis and bigots. Well, of course. Which is why I, I'm like, who's still on Twitter? I just <laughs> told you, me, about other people. So what you're saying is you love Elon Musk. <laughs> Not even a little. Like, I find him repulsive, both physically and every other way. Wow. <laughs> we don't body shame around It's not here. about body shaming. I just find him repulsive. Like. Wow. His just his mean is just uh, is ugly. Wow. He said we don't do that here. Actually, we do that. We here. do that here very frequently. <laughs> but, uh, but he's yeah. no Farley Granger. I'll tell you that. True. But uh, but yeah, it's like the m- the reason I keep bringing up the who's still on Twitter thing is that unfortunately that's the only answer is just to leave the damn platform. Like that's really it. It's you know it's like he runs it. Mm. He can kind of do whatever he wants with it. Your your protest, if you want to have a protest, needs to be leaving it. Like that's right. the only one that's gonna have make a difference. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, like I said, this is the double bind, especially for a lot of independent queer creatives who need this kind of outlet to 
get their work out, but mm-hmm. also have to just sort of thread this terrible needle of complicity. Mm-hmm. Or you use one of the other platforms. None of them have. Or, or you use several of the other platforms. And again, and I know that that's, I know that that costs something. But this is where I'm going to pull out my old head <laughs> and be like, that's what I want to remind folks of: is that protest has always required us to give something up. Right. If you want, if we want actual social change, it actually does cost. And if that cost is you don't get to use the most convenient platform then maybe that's the cost that comes with this. Look at the cost that people paid during the civil rights movement. <laughs> Look at the cost that people made during the women's rights movement. Look at the cost that people paid every time we've tried to advance rights. Maybe stepping away from Twitter is something we can do. Mm. Maybe maybe that's a price we can actually pay. Right. I'm not sure I agree, but I'm also not sure I disagree. So it's that liminal space that we talked to you about with Rope that sometimes there is no real easy answer. So that's it's easy our... for me. I just don't use Twitter. Well, yeah, you don't use Twitter, so it's not. You have nothing to lose. <laughs> but that seems like I mean, I I brought that up just because I think it's in it's a conversation that a lot of us are going to have to have going forward. As must become sort of lets the mask slip mm-hmm. and makes it much more explicit how much he really hates trans people in particular. Yeah, I just don't see why I would. I would just never. It would never occur to me to support a platform that didn't want me there. Right. For me, that's the answer. It really, to me, it's that simple. Right. But of course, I understand that everybody has to make their own decisions there. Yeah, I would say it's as with so many other elements of social media, it's complicated. Well, that seems like a good place to end. So, as always, we would like to thank all of you for listening. We really appreciate every one of our loyal listeners who tunes into us every week. I'm not even going to bother asking Aaron where we can find him on social media. Certainly just, not on Twitter. Certainly not on Twitter. Uh, but if you would like to follow moi, you can follow me on Twitter on, for the moment at TJ West and the number three. You can also follow me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. You can also follow our Queens of the Bees Instagram, which is just at Queens of the Bees, where we post, you know, well, obviously we'll be announcing new episodes of the pod, but also we'll be, we review other films that we watch and other TV series that we watch going, and even books sometimes. A little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might even get a cat picture. No, no or, a cat picture. Oh, shush. Or, <laughs> or selfies. Who knows? You know, there's, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> um, so please do check us out there. You can also check out my Substack newsletter, Omnivorous, where I do write about a lot of the stuff that we cover here on the pod. So if you don't want to necessarily listen to the full 45 minutes, then you can check out what I've written. And sometimes it's also just expanding on a thread that we only touch on in the, mo- the in our discussion. Uh, but, you know, I li- read about lots of stuff there, not just queer stuff. I'm sorry, I'm still recovering from the suggestion that people wouldn't want to listen to all 45 minutes of our podcast. I know, it's tragic. It's really tragic. I mean, that that's not even a thing, right? It is not a thing. I'm just, I'm just speculating. Ah, yes, yes. Just speculating. Fair enough. And then, of course, please do remember to rate or rank us wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or wherever. Please do be sure to do that because it really helps build our visibility. And, you know, we're a scrappy little podcast that can. You know, we're always willing to keep doing this thing, but any bit of support we have would help. And, of course, that also means please recommend us to your friends, gay, straight, or otherwise. We think that we like to think we're pretty fun to listen to. Uh, we get lots of high reviews when people listen to us, so... You know, if you know someone else who would like to learn about queer movies, you know, give them a recommendation. And we would appreciate that. So, for Queens of the Bees, I am TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we will talk to you next week. (laughs)